I'm going to give you a small piece of information, and I want you to lock it away in the safe vault of your mind. Here it is. I want to tell you about a man named Sean. Sean lived thousands of years ago, and Sean was in a crisis. He was quickly packing what he could carry on his back and perhaps on a couple of pack animals. He was getting his family ready to leave everything they had ever known and to run for their lives into a wilderness. He carried basic necessities. He carried food. He carried supplies, the basics you might take on an ancient times camping trip. But he was also carrying something of ultimate importance, something he could not possibly have understood just how important this thing is. And so Sean, packing his family to escape certain death, carrying basic necessities, which included something of immense value, something, in fact, that would turn the world upside down, that would change the course of history. But for now, his only thought was to save his family, and so they packed and they ran. Now, I want you to put this in the vault of your mind. In fact, we'll, we'll repeat some phrases Sean was running for his life. Repeat that. Sean was running for his life. Sean was leading his family. Sean was leading his family. And Sean was carrying something of value. Sean was carrying something of value. So now, take Sean and put him in the vault of your mind, quickly packing essentials to save the lives of himself and his family, to flee into the wilderness, carrying something so valuable that the entire course of history would be changed. Because of what he carried. Now just turn the safe dial and lock it up for a bit. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. And we'll look at three verses. Verses 13 through 15. Matthew 2, 13 through 15. Our little Christmas time mini-series we've been doing. We've been looking at Christmas past and future. To see the connections and the contrasts and the parallels. Between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Now, last time we saw the coming of the wise men who turned out to be descendants of Abraham, physical cousins to the Lord Jesus, the ones who, along with their descendants, will present gifts to Christ once again at the coming kingdom of Christ on earth. But after the wise men left, King Herod, the the client king who is essentially hired by Rome to rule the region of Judea, he's an insanely jealous king. We, saw, we see that he is determined to find Jesus, the true king of the Jews, and to murder him. And so our story picks up right after the wise men leave, after having given to baby Jesus immense wealth, having worshipped him as true believers in the Son of God. And so this morning, in our look at Christmas past and future, I'd like to look at what we'll call Jesus and his great escape Jesus and his great escape. And in fact, there are three great escapes that I'd like to show you this morning. The three great escapes of Jesus, but we're going to do them out of order. We're going to stay true to the chronology. So we're going to do the second great escape. Then we'll do the first great escape. And then we'll do the third great escape. And so we'll start in the middle here. The second great escape of Jesus occurs right here in Matthew chapter 2. And so let's read together chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, that is the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. 
For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And what was it that Jesus was escaping? Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two, two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. When did this happen? This happened precisely 4 B.C. In the year 4 B.C., this is the most likely year of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ because of this event. Verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. King Herod died in 4 B.C. We know this for a fact from history. And so first Jesus escaped to Egypt and then was brought out of Egypt by Joseph and Mary to now settle back in Israel in Nazareth, which we'll look at on Christmas Eve, by the way. And so let me just point out some observations here. In verse 13, you'll notice that the angel doesn't call Jesus Joseph's child, just the child. You'll also notice that the child comes before his mother. Rise, take the child and his mother. Jesus is the central focus of this narrative. He's the focus of the story. And I want you to notice the timing here. When they had departed, meaning right after the wise men had left, that very night, Joseph had his dream. That same evening. What does that mean? Well, it means that now they were set up money-wise. We saw this from the gifts that were brought by the wise men. They're set up money-wise to make this journey and to live for many months, however long it takes to stay safe. Now, ironically, considering the ancient history of Israel and Egypt, ironically, during the time of the birth of Christ, Egypt would have been a very natural safe haven for a Jew to go to. Because there was a large Jewish community that had been living in Egypt now for several centuries before the birth of Christ, a well-established community. So Joseph and Mary would not be alone. They would be among fellow Jews who would certainly welcome a young family with a baby fleeing a wicked king. In verse 14, we notice that they left at night. This is an act of true desperation. They had no headlights. Traveling at night was not easy and it was dangerous. And so they obviously were responding very quickly. What does this mean? It means that when the angel's message was complete to Joseph in his dream, he woke up, he got up, got his family packed, and they took off that night. And so if you can imagine all the wondrous scenes you have in your mind of the wise men coming and presenting their gifts and all the hymns now we even sing about it, the, the trunks and the chests of, of gold and, and the myrrh and the frankincense and, and we sing Silent Night and we think it, how wonderful that is. Well, after they left, Joseph and Mary went to bed and Joseph had this dream and he got up and they were leaving within hours the trail was still warm with the wise men having left. And now they're leaving. And verse 15 tells us that this event fulfills what the prophet said, Out of Egypt I called my son. This quote is from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. 
the prophet Hosea, and it describes the return of Jesus after Herod's death. And so Jesus, by the will of God, he escaped the wicked king Herod. The wise men had come and by God's plan had given Jesus enough wealth for Joseph and Mary to live on for many months until they could settle back in Nazareth. Why was Jesus in danger? Well, later revelation at the end of the New Testament tells us precisely who was behind the attempted murder of Jesus. Revelation 12, 4 tells us that Satan, the dragon, quote, stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And he attempted to use Herod for that purpose. And so then Jesus would grow up in Nazareth. Undoubtedly, he would learn Joseph's trade as a carpenter like all oldest sons would. Mary would continue to have children. We know of a minimum of six and Jesus would begin his ministry at the age of 30, according to Luke 3.23. Jesus would faithfully do the work of the ministry. Then he would go to the cross willingly to die for the sins of all who would believe, for the Jew first, then for the, the Gentile, according to Romans 1. He would be raised from the dead, demonstrating that the fullness of the payment for sin to satisfy and to make propitiation for the wrath of God against sin has been completed and so that escape to Egypt and then being brought out of Egypt becomes very, very important. The whole course of history has been changed by that. But why does Matthew quote Hosea 11.1? 1? Hosea 11.1 1 speaks of God saving Israel out of Egyptian slavery and miraculously bringing them out through the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's army. What does that have to do with anything? Well, that brings us now to the first great escape of Jesus. The first great escape of Jesus. We can date this precisely at 1446 B.C., the date of the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. Now, if I try to give you the end of this little story, it might not make sense. So we're going to take kind of a long journey here together. I've never believed in the preaching principle that says that I have to simplify everything for you. You're intelligent people. They have the Spirit of God. And yes, we make the Bible understandable, but that takes effort. It takes thought. So we're going to lay an extensive foundation for you and then get more specific. And then I promise we will get back to the great escape of Jesus in 1446 B.C. So what I want to do to kind of lay this foundation is I want to give you three general principles to understand. We'll take a bit of time on this. And then three specific principles for this exact situation, what's happening here. And so I, I trust you and I trust the Lord that we can walk through this and, and really open our minds to understand the word of God in as much totality as we're capable of. So three general principles to understand. We're going to pour some concrete here for a little bit. The first principle the New Testament always uses the Old Testament in its original context. The New Testament always uses the Old Testament in its original context. Now, you might say, well, what's the big deal? Well, there's a couple of Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, so who cares? Well, there's more than a couple. There are about 360 direct quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. That's 4.4% of the entire New Testament is quotes from the Old. Psalms is quoted more than any other book, 79 times. Isaiah comes in second at 70. Deuteronomy is quoted 50 times. Genesis is quoted 46 times. A minimum of 26 
of the 39 Old Testament books are quoted in the New Testament. This cements a very, very clear connection between the Testaments. At least 19 of the 27 New Testament books clearly quote the Old Testament, and the rest of the remaining eight books the Old Testament is alluded to, or, or hinted at at least. The books in the New Testament that quote the Old Testament the most is kind of a dead heat. Romans, 66 times. Matthew, barely making it to second at 65. But the New Testament also contains allusions. Not illusions, but allusions, as in something being alluded to. It means references to a specific Old Testament text. It, it might not be a quote, but an allusion is a short burst of a few words that clearly points to a specific text in the Old Testament. It connects it directly to a, a specific passage. Uh, for example, both Peter and Paul, while they're not quoting about new heavens and new earth... They talk about the new heaven and new earth, which is a clear allusion or reference to Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. As a matter of fact, allusions, these hints, these references to the Old Testament make up an even higher percentage of, uh, of the Old Testament than straight quotes do, uh, in the New Testament rather. And so if you put them together, if you put the direct exact quotes and the allusions, the references together, they make up... 10% of the New Testament. One out of every 10 verses in the, in the New Testament is Old Testament. And so now that is bringing us to a very important question. And that is, how does the New Testament use the Old Testament in both its quotations and its allusions? And my time as a pastor, the overwhelming experience that I've had is that the average church member, the wonderful Christian who's trying to live for Christ and trying to make his way through this life and through this world toward heaven faithfully, that the average Christian defaults automatically to assuming that when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament or alludes to something in the Old Testament, the meaning is still the same. That what the Old Testament meant when, when it was written is what it means now. And I think that makes sense to all of us. This is what some theologians call the single meaning view. That every Old Testament text has a single meaning that has always been the same, but this single meaning can have multiple implications, multiple applications. And in my estimation, that's the default view of the backbone of the church, that it's her members, unless they're taught differently. There are numerous other views of how the Old Testament is used in the, in the New Testament. And this is a hotly debated, debated topic. has been for some time now. I'll give you a few examples. One popular view holds that the Old Testament has human meanings, human uh, earthly meanings that the Old Testament author knew, but that all Old Testament texts also have a hidden divine meaning that the Old Testament author did not know. Now, we would acknowledge that this might be the case at times, but we can't say that every single Old Testament text has this hidden meaning that the author was unaware of, that somehow they're, they're just like robots and they're going, I must write down what I hear. That's not what is happening here. There's another view that says that New Testament authors used what they would call a Jewish hermeneutic, a Jewish Bible study method that allowed for reinterpreting Old Testament texts and even altering their meaning to make them metaphorical or allegorical. 
that somehow the, the Jewish, the ancient Jewish method of interpreting the Old Testament was to, uh, to change it up, to make it a metaphor, to make it allegorical if necessary. The problem with that is that there's not really much historical basis for saying that that was a Jewish method of interpreting Scripture. It's primarily mythological. As a matter of fact, when reinterpretation of the Old Testament did happen, who corrected it? Jesus did. When they didn't get the the Scriptures right, he corrected them with the false wicked leaders of Israel. There's another view that says that the New Testament now reinterprets the Old Testament. This is sometimes called the New Testament priority over the Old that the Bible essentially is meant to be read backwards. You begin with the, the New Testament and then go to the Old Testament. What does this mean? Well, it means that the promises that God made to Abraham concerning Israel now pertain to the church. It means that the land of Israel now becomes metaphorical. That when God promised Abraham land, he didn't mean actual dirt. He didn't mean actual space. He meant something different. It also means that this method primarily has an impact on eradicating a belief in the coming national restoration of Israel. Because now Israel becomes the church and there's a lot of varieties to that view. And this, by the way, is the hermeneutic system that it begins with a theological view and then creates a Bible studies uh, method to fit that view. Now there are lots of other variations on the views I just gave you, but the only view that contains a consistent Bible study method in which the Old Testament authors, what they meant at the time, remains the same and isn't somehow changed, is the single meaning view. What does the single meaning view say? This view says that the New Testament writers consistently stayed within the original context of the Old Testament. They didn't spiritualize. They didn't find new meanings. They didn't find hidden meanings in the text. Land doesn't become the church. Israel doesn't become the church. Israel doesn't become Christ. That when God told Abraham, I will give your descendants all the land from the river Euphrates to the great river of Egypt, that Abraham took it as, my descendants will get all the land from the great river Euphrates to the great river of Egypt. Not, well, he didn't really mean what he said. What he really meant was that he would create a people. The single meaning view says there are multiple implications, but only one overall meaning to the text, and it never changes. This also means that the Old Testament author, he would understand what he wrote, but not necessarily all the implications and all the applications. I'll give you an example. King David wrote in Psalm 2 of a coming king who would rule all the nations. There is not a chance that David thought, well, I guess that's me. I guess I'm the one ruling all the nations. He didn't rule all the nations, and he knew that. He knew this was Messiah, and Psalm 2 demonstrates that he knows this. But he didn't know that Jesus would use Psalm 2 to motivate the church at Thyatira in Revelation 2 to better obedience to the Lord. David wouldn't have known that. But certainly we can't say that when Moses recorded in Genesis 15, 18, quote, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. We cannot say that the New Testament now changes what Moses originally meant. An actual land with definable boundaries. And so again, the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament in context. They don't take 
verses out of context. They don't reinvent meanings. In fact, if the New Testament authors are not quoting the Old Testament in context, that leaves us with two major problems. The first one is now we have to have two different Bible study systems. You have to have one for the New Testament that is literal and one for the Old Testament that is metaphorical. And the second problem, more to our context today, if the New Testament authors are able to spiritualize or rip the Old Testament out of its context, what stops us from doing that? Why not? It opens the door for us to attempt to reinterpret the Old Testament. And now we're off to the races to find hidden meanings everywhere or make some real promises to real men now be metaphorical and be allegorical. Now, you might be asking, why are you burdening me with this detail? I just wanted to have a nice Christmas. That was all I was thinking today. Because the use of Hosea 11.1 in Matthew 2.15 is by far the most debated case of the New Testament use of the Old Testament in the Bible. Because here's the question. How can Hosea 11.1, which is clearly talking about the Exodus in 1446 B.C., how can that be fulfilled in Jesus when the Exodus was simply an event in history that happened 1,442 years earlier? Well, we'll get to that, but we have to keep laying this foundation. The rest of it will go a little faster. Here's a second general principle to understand. Bible prophecy includes several variations but never alters the original meaning of the Old Testament. Bible prophecy includes several variations, but never alters or redirects the original meaning of the Old Testament. Let me give you a few of those variations. Certainly not all. We don't have time for all of them, but just a few. The one you're most familiar with, we'll just call direct fulfillment. Direct fulfillment prophecy is when a prophet says, this is what's going to happen, and then it happens. We understand that. For example, the prophetic prediction of um, the birth of Christ being in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. That's a prediction that comes true. Now, that's our primary understanding of prophecy. I think we, we default to that, that the prophet said something that comes true. That's prophecy. But there's other variations. There's also what we could call partial and completed prophecy. Partial and completed prophecy. That in other words, there's sort of a prophecy given and it's completed in multiple parts. Example, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus quoted Isaiah 61, 1 and 2a to the first part of the verse as being fulfilled in him, but he stopped short of the rest of verse 2 because it speaks to the coming rule of Messiah. That hasn't happened yet. Is, is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 one prophecy? Yes. How many parts is it completed in? In two. Another example, in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, he quotes Joel chapter 2, the, coming, the prophecy of the coming of the Holy Spirit, as being fulfilled. But this is only partially fulfilled at Pentecost because the rest of Joel chapter 2 speaks of the, the coming day of the Lord and the signs of judgment, like the moon turning to blood and those sorts of things. So it's a partial fulfillment. There's another variation, what theologians call typology or, or types. For example, Abel was killed by his brother Cain. He's shown to be a type. It just means a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of Christ in that Abel was the first one to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Matthew 23 says this. Hebrews chapter 3 explains that Moses was a type of Christ. In fact, in the final message I preached in our 65 message series through the Pentateuch, I showed 12 ways that Moses is like Christ, points to Christ. 
And one more variation of prophecy, the one I'm really trying to get to, what we might call connections or parallels. Connections or parallels. And this is all going to make sense here shortly. And this is what I want to focus on for a third general principle. Here's the third principle. God sovereignly orchestrates historical parallels or connections. God sovereignly orchestrates or makes happen historical parallels or connections. What does this mean? It means that there are many instances of of correlations, of parallels, interconnections to demonstrate that God is sovereignly designing and steering all of redemptive history. In fact, this is seen in the use of the word fulfill. The Greek word for fulfill used here in Matthew 2.15 has a wide variety of uses depending on the context. It can mean to fill up to make full, to realize, to bring to realization, to complete, to bring to pass, to accomplish, to consummate. Sometimes fulfill does refer to predictive prophecy, as we said, to a direct completion of an Old Testament prediction. But in the Gospel of Matthew, four times, the word fulfill is used to link Israel's history with events in the life of Jesus. A parallel, a connection, a correlation with a greater fulfillment, but with a very, very clear link. These are divinely orchestrated parallels which give clear evidence that God is sovereign, God is at work, God is moving in redemptive history. Now, why is this important? Listen carefully. Because to the Jew, there is no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing as coincidence. And these parallels, these correlations, are are meant to bring the reader to faith. This is why Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because we're so much alike. And in Matthew's gospel in particular, which is written first to the Jewish believer in Christ, to confirm that what they believed about Christ is true from of old, No wonder Matthew quotes the Old Testament 65 times. So these are three important general principles to understand. The New Testament always uses the Old Testament in its original context. Bible prophecy includes several variations, but never alters the original meaning of the Old Testament. And God sovereignly orchestrates historical parallels. Now... The concrete is drying, and we can build some structure on this. So let me give you some three specific principles to understand about this situation. The first one is, the one can represent the many. The one can represent the many. Matthew is not explaining Hosea 11.1 as much as showing the connection, the correlation, the correspondence between Israel as a nation and Jesus as an individual. In fact, the concept of the one representing the many was already understood by the Jews. This was a common concept for them. And this is, again, important in Matthew's gospel, written primarily to the Jews. And by pointing out to the Jews these amazing and striking parallels between God's movements and and workings in history, especially in these key moments like the birth of Jesus Christ, This would be very convincing to the Jews because they did not believe in coincidence. That they would see that God has woven the threads of redemptive history and he is sown with the same thread that he has sown into the Exodus. That thread has continued all the way to the birth of Christ and that thread has remained unbroken. 
There's a second specific principle. The main connection in verse 15 is the phrase, my son. The main connection is the phrase, my son. The main focus of both Matthew 2.15 and Hosea 11.1 is my son. God calling his son. And this applies both to Israel corporately and to Jesus individually. In fact, Hosea uses singular nouns to describe the whole nation. Now, this gets us back to one of our uh, more foundational principles. Remember that the, the Old Testament author, generally speaking, knew what he was writing. And in this case, Hosea, the son of a prophet and very well versed in the word of God, he knew that there was a coming promised one. He knew there was a coming Messiah who appears in earlier scripture and he is called the son of God. Hosea would have known, 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. He would have known, Psalm 2, 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. He would know, Psalm 89, 27, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. He would know, Proverbs 30, verse 4, you say, well, the book of Proverbs doesn't talk about the son of God. Listen, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind to his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Hosea knew that the son of God was coming. And so the term son carries both the corporate sense and the individual sense. And this isn't the only time this happens in scripture. You're already familiar with one. Genesis 3.15 God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What does this mean? Offspring in Genesis 3.15 is used both in the collective idea of all of mankind and in the individual, he will bruise your head. An individual who would overthrow the serpent. One more specific principle Israel is connected to her coming king. Israel is connected to her coming king. The connection between Israel and the coming king of Israel isn't just inferred. It's not just assumed. The connection has already been openly taught in the Old Testament. And Hosea would have known this. Numbers chapter 23 and chapter 24. You don't have to turn there. But in Numbers 23 and 24, we see the oracles of Balaam. And we remember Balaam. He was a false prophet that God used, nevertheless, to speak the truth about Israel, even against Balaam's will. He had been hired by Balak, the king of the Moabites, to prophesy against Israel. But to Balak's dismay, Balaam kept on proclaiming the blessing and power of Israel. If I can put it to you this way, Balaam is about to say, may God curse Israel. And he opens his mouth and says, may God bless Israel. And Balak is like, that's not what I hired you for. Balaam gave several oracles that were given by God with God literally putting words in his mouth. Listen to the connection between Israel and Israel's king in two separate oracles that are identical, except one is national and one is individual. Numbers 23, verse 22, God brings them, third person plural pronoun, Israel, God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. 
Numbers 24, verse 7, in his next oracle, Balaam declares that the coming king of Israel, remember this is 400 years before Israel has even had a king, the coming king of Israel will reign over the most exalted kingdom on earth. Then, Numbers 24, 8, God brings him, third person singular pronoun, the king, out of, guess where? Egypt. And is for him like the horns of a wild ox. Israel and Jesus listed together. Numbers 23 refers to Israel, while Numbers 24 refers to Israel's king. And God brings both Israel and Israel's king out of Egypt with a clear connection between the corporate and the individual. What does this mean? It means that when Hosea wrote, he already knew from Scripture the connection between Israel and his coming king. This information was already available to him. And so when Matthew makes the same connection, he's staying true to the context of Hosea. Does that make sense? So how does Jesus fulfill Israel's exodus from Egypt? Because Jesus is the supreme, he is the ultimate Israelite. The ultimate representative of Israel. He's related to Israel, he's descended from Israel, he's contained in Israel before his birth. He's Israel's Messiah who will restore Israel and also bring blessings to the Gentiles as well. And you notice the correspondence. You're already getting this. In Exodus, Israel was escaping a false king who desired to destroy Israel. And in Matthew 2, Jesus is escaping a false king who desired to destroy Jesus, the true king of Israel. So why can the Exodus... The events spoken of by Hosea and corresponded to by Matthew, why can the Exodus be the first great escape of Jesus? Jesus wasn't even born yet. The Exodus happened 1446 B.C., 1142 years before the birth of Christ. Well, again, we connect the one to the many. And to fully explain this, we have to understand how God views the human race. How does he view the human race? He views us that you were, in essence, contained in your fathers. You were contained in your fathers. And what do we mean by this? Well, for example, all of us, all of you came from Adam and Eve. Every one of you. And because of Adam's sin, you have a sin nature. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says that in Adam all die. You were in Adam. Now, let me get even more specific. Hebrews chapter 7 recounts the time that a grateful Abraham who had just rescued his family from the clutches of evil kings and and he had paid 10% of the spoils of battle to the priest Melchizedek. And then the chapter connects this event eventually to the law of the tithe which was the tax on Israel to support the Levites the the tribe descended from Abraham's great-grandson Levi. But here's the interesting part. One of the reasons that the author of Hebrews says that Levi, the tribe of the Levites, had a right to receive the tithe, to receive the tenth, was that Levi had already paid a tithe. Levi had already paid 10% to Melchizedek. And you scratch your head and say, wait a minute, Levi wasn't even born yet. His father wasn't even born yet. His grandfather wasn't even born yet. How can it be that Levi gave the tithe? Hebrews 7.10 reveals how God views the human race. He, Levi, was still in the loins of his ancestor, Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. In other words, 
As far as God was concerned, Levi was there because his great-grandfather was there. One of the purposes of Israel is to be the vehicle by which God brings Messiah to earth. Paul affirms this in Romans 9, 5. To them, that is Israel, belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. So when Israel was delivered by God from Egypt as they crossed the Red Sea, God was preserving the coming of Christ in the future. Now I want you to go back to that vault, that safe in your mind, and unlock it and take out the man named Sean. Sean lived thousands of years ago. Sean was packing his family to escape certain death. He was carrying basic necessities, which included something of immense value, something that would turn the world upside down. I even had you repeat this. Sean was running for his life. Sean was leading his family. Sean was carrying something of immense value that would change the course of history. Sean's full name is Nashan. In Hebrew, you would say it, Nachshon. We would say Nashan if we just pronounce it in English. Nashan not only had a family, but he was the head of the tribe of Judah at the time of the exodus of Israel. First Chronicles 2.10 calls him the prince of the sons of Judah. In Numbers 1, verses 4 and 7, he's listed as the head of the tribe of Judah immediately following the exodus. And what was the valuable cargo that Nashan carried with him? In fact, that he carried in him the very human seed of the one to be born 1,442 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back a page to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And then it goes all the way, of course, to Christ. By saving Israel, God saved Nashon. And by saving Nashon, God saved Jesus. The original great escape was in 1446 B.C. Matthew was not reinterpreting Hosea 11.1. That's ridiculous. He's not simply finding a coincidental event and trying to turn it into a messianic prophecy. Instead, in his Holy Spirit-inspired text, he makes a vital connection between a significant episode in Israel's history and a significant episode in the life of Jesus. Why? To show that Jesus is connected to Israel. Jesus escaped at the Exodus so that he in turn could be the savior of his people. Now, just so you don't ask for your money back, yes, this series is called Christmas Past and Future, which brings us to the third great escape of Jesus. Why would it be important for Matthew to connect Jesus to Israel? This is where we get to Christmas Future. Because Jesus is the true representative of Israel who will save and restore her as a nation someday, yet to be in the future. Turn with me to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. And we're going to see the prophetic pre-Bethlehem words of the Son of God. The Son of God speaks in Isaiah 49, 700 years before his own birth. 
Isaiah 49, verse 5, if we were to write a hymn from this verse, it would be in the Christmas section of our hymnal. Isaiah 49, verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. The Son of God speaks, by the way, and now Yahweh says, and then it quotes the Son of God. God is God the Son, God is God the Father. The Son of God speaks, He's formed in the womb to be the servant of His Father. This will happen in His ministry, it will happen at the cross when the Son of God serves His Father by becoming the substitutionary payment for the sins of all who will believe, both in Israel and for all the Gentiles who will believe. That includes us. But what's the culminating goal of the redemptive work of Christ? What's the end game? To bring Jacob back to God. That Israel might be gathered to God. Now, those in the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament camp might say, well, actually, this is fulfilled in the church. God is always precise. Look at verse 6. He says, this is now God the Father speaking. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is very, very specific. The tribes of Jacob, the preserved of Israel, those who will come to saving faith in Christ, true, genuine believers of the Old Testament as well. And, and, in addition to, different from, distinct from, I will make you as a light for the goyim, for the nations, for the non-Jews. What about the third great escape of Jesus Christ? At his first coming, Jesus came to offer himself as a propitiation, a sacrifice for sins that all who trust in him might be saved from the eternal penalty of their sins. And these saved, if Jews will form the new nation of Israel someday, and if Gentiles will be part of the nations that have seen his light of salvation and will worship him in the coming millennial kingdom. Somebody's asked, well, what if somebody's part Jew and part Gentile? I think we call that dual citizenship. But even at his first coming, Satan continually came against Jesus at his birth, at the temptation. Five times that we have recorded, people tried to murder him before he went willingly to the cross. Again, Revelation 12, 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. When did that happen? Forty days after the resurrection. Acts 1, so when they had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Meaning they all believed the kingdom of Israel would be restored. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. In other words, yes, it will be restored. I'm not just telling you when. I'm just not telling you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, as he was was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as they went, As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, 
Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. By the way, remember we said that sometimes prophecies are fulfilled in parts. A partial fulfillment and eventually the complete fulfillment. We've already read one partial fulfillment, but let me read the complete fulfillment. Numbers 24, 8. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. That's been fulfilled, but it keeps going. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows that all who stand against Christ will be crushed by him at the second coming. Israel escaped so that God would form her into his beloved nation at Mount Sinai and because Israel carried, as it were, the Messiah in the person of Nashan. Jesus escaped Herod so that he would grow up. Jesus would grow up to carry out the ministry of reconciliation and salvation at the cross and at his resurrection. And Jesus escaped, as it were, to heaven so that he could return and do what? save Israel, bring his light of salvation to all the nations to the end of the earth. But those three great escapes are numbers two, three, and four in the great escapes of Jesus Christ because there's one that's better. Here's the best one. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. The psalmist is quoted in Acts 2.27, speaking for Christ. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Romans 6 verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And Jesus himself said, what a declaration in, Rome, in Revelation 1.17. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. What does that great escape from death mean for all who would trust Christ for forgiveness of sins? Jesus said in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live Revelation 21, 4, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life and probably most familiar to all of us, 1 Corinthians 15, 55, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? You see, you also will have a great escape. And it's a pretty important one because you get one shot. As your body begins to fail, and as from a human standpoint, all seems lost and your very existence is in jeopardy, suddenly and at precisely the exact moment that God has ordained before the foundation of the world, you who are in Christ will be absent from the body 
and with the Lord. And your escape will be perfectly successful, just like Christ. Why do we know this? Because he promised. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Four reasons that you can trust that Christ won't let you go. You ready? Great escape, number one, two, three, and four. Do you trust him? You trust him? There's going to be a moment where you have no choice. So trust him now. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this text that is stunning. So stunning to us, Lord, that out of Egypt I called my son the very seed of our Savior being walked through the Red Sea, settling in Israel, having a son and another son and another son. And eventually, we see the birth of a man named David who has a son, who has a son, who has a son, who has a son. And all the way down, Till we get to 4 BC. In the greatest night ever. The night that our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world as a human being. To meet us where we are. To bridge the gap between God and man. And to forever be fully God and fully man. Just like you and just like us. That as we hold the hand of Christ, we hold the hand of God. And so we thank you for his sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for the payment for sin, which has purchased our redemption. Eternity will not be long enough to give you the thanks that that is truly due to your name. We thank you and we praise you this Christmas season. Amen.